the optimal life. Good, good. So uh, define for us the meaning of self-actualization. What is that? It's a good question to start. Uh, I say I would say that my interpretation, my definition of it is just continually committing to self-development. I'm often not a fan of the term self-development, self-improvement. Um, I think that those kind of, it suggests that there's this incremental process uh, to life, which I think there can be, but I don't think there needs to be. Uh, and so that term self-actualization, I feel like is a little bit more holistic in the sense of, you know, there are many things in life that we can actualize um, and it goes beyond kind of thoughts, emotions, beliefs, behaviors, and kind of brings us more into a conversation about potential. When does one use self-actualization? What, what do you use it for? Throughout that personal development process, I think there are many things that uh, we as individuals have to come to terms with, right? We need to recognize when there are self-limiting beliefs that are holding us back, um, when there are fears that are holding us back, when there are assumptions that might be holding us back, you know, whether they're conscious or unconscious. And I think in order to self-actualize, we really need to turn and face those things, recognize the role that they're playing in our life, and then, and then you know, be, be intentional about transforming them into something that's a little bit more meaningful. What are some things that we do, uh, generally speaking, you, you mentioned limiting beliefs. What are some examples that we seem, seem to struggle with as individuals overall? You know, I'll, I'll start with a kind of a general answer to answer your question, and then I'll speak a little bit about, about my own personal experience. Sure. I think one thing um, right off the bat is just potential. Right. I think often we sell ourselves short on what we're capable of. And to talk a little bit about my own personal experience, you know, I, if anybody knows my, my story personally, um, they'll know that, you know, I was I was an addict for 12 years, substance use and abuse. And for probably the last 10 and a half years, um, I didn't I didn't want to be I knew I didn't want to be. Uh, but I was really struggling to make those changes, right? To do the self-actualization that would actually bring me into that next chapter of life, right? And what, what was I've your learned, what were you addicted to, Ian? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you know, mostly just the gateways, right? Um, smoked a lot of marijuana, drank a lot of alcohol, experimented with other stuff, you know, when it was available. Um, you know, and so I'm I'm always a little hesitant to use that term addiction and recovery because you know, there, there are many people who are, uh, their stories are much more extreme than my own. But as I moved through that process, you know, and I moved into recovery now coming up on eight years, there's, there's a lot of different phases, right. Of, of those self-limiting beliefs. And, you know, maybe the first one was just, I don't believe I can do it. Second one was, I don't believe that I can actually, you know, deal with the emotions that I've been suppressing right? All this time. So you go through these phases. And I think we all have those in our own, um, our own personal lives, right? And they all, they all manifest differently for every single one of us. But to, again, to circle back to your question, you know, I, I think it's just a question of potential, right? And, and there's fear around really leaning into living into our full potential. So somebody feels afraid, they're fearful, did you know deep down, you, you mentioned you wanted to be different. You wanted to make a change. 
You just didn't believe you could make a change. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say in the beginning, I really struggled to believe that I could. Um, eventually, you know, as as my relationship progressed, uh, my relationship with substances progressed and myself, I knew I was capable of it, but I had to do some real deep digging in order to, you know, find that within myself, which would allow me to to do that self-actualization, right? Where, where do you start d- digging deep? Where does the dig, like, what is the catalyst for you to say, okay, I'm going to start finally doing this? Yeah, that's a great question. Because that's, I mean, that's where it all begins, right? For me, I think it starts with, and there's even a passage in, in the book about this. Um, first, it just starts with acknowledging, right? We need to acknowledge the role that those things are, um, that our behaviors, thoughts, beliefs, emotions, relationships, et cetera, are playing in our life. And we need to acknowledge the real impact that they're having, not the impact that we think they're having or that we want them to have, but what the impact they're actually having. And then after we acknowledge that, we can move towards acceptance, right? Really coming to terms with the things we do or don't like about ourselves, et cetera. Where I started um, was a hell of a lot of self-reflection. You know, I mean, I knew that I needed to really dive into the emotions, like I mentioned, that I was suppressing or avoiding through substance use and abuse. Mm. And I knew that if I didn't address those emotions and really get to their core, their taproot, I wasn't really going to be taking that journey, you know, to the depths, to the fullest extent. And so for me, it started with self-reflection. Um, And that manifested in a number of different ways. I think probably the most useful was I spent hours upon hours upon hours just journaling by myself alone in a room in silence. You know, therapy was another. Um, I mean, there are a number of different things that I used in order to self-reflect. But the bottom line, it was it was a lot of time focused on self-contemplation. And that was something that was often uncomfortable, but really necessary. So you started feeling good or better when you were doing the journaling, but that's me, myself, and I. What then caused you to say, this is good, but this is not enough. I need to still talk to somebody. I need to have the the community aspect. What, what caused that? I would say that it was an awareness um, of my own limitations. And, you know, so moving through the journaling and recognizing I keep reaching a dead end when I start writing about this. Um, or I keep, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm literally feeling this kind of lid on this thing. And I'm not sure how to break through it myself. Mm. And so at that point, you know, and, I, and I've always been the type of person who I'm never one to shy away from taking advice from somebody who knows more be more about me in a specific area, right? I mean, everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses. I'm happy to take it on the chin. I would rather have an expert tell me here's how to do this um, to jumpstart the process. And then I can kind of, you know, shortcut that learning curve and eventually turn it into my own, my own process. But that's kind of where it started for me, right? Recognizing those limitations, kind of feeling energetically, emotionally, there's this lid and I can't quite push past it. Let me bring in some outside resources and additional support. Mm. So you you mentioned acknowledge, acknowledging is the first step. Accepting 
is the second step. Basically surrendering. Stop trying to fight it. This is the reality of my situation. I am accepting who I am. I am accepting what I am, who I have become. And in order for you to continue to improve to self-actualization, you have to go through those first couple things, right? I think so. And then after you accept and surrender, is there another step after that? Adaptation. Adaptation. You know, when you, uh, when we as individuals or we as a collective, and that's what I think is, you know, there's, there's a lot of beauty in terms of what we're going through culturally right now. Acknowledge and accept where we are. You know, we take off the rose-colored lenses. We get to this really raw, authentic, often vulnerable space. But that's really where the change happens, right? That's where there's there's real depth. I would say that those are the moments when we're really, you know, in touch with the core, we're in touch with the taproot of whatever it is that we're trying to work through. And then we just need to, you know, acknowledge and accept the fact that adaptation is required. If we want a different experience or a different outcome, we need different inputs, right? And I think we're going through that collectively right now as well, right? If we want to address some of these grand challenges of social change, uh, climate change, et cetera, we need, we're kind of aware that that adaptation piece is required. We need to change our behaviors um, along with a whole lot of other stuff as well. You tie in nature to your spiritual mission. You say nature is extremely important. Dig into that a little bit for us. When you talk about nature, why is it important? How is it important? How is it affecting us, et cetera? Yeah, again, I'll, I'll try and do a little kind of dual commentary here. Yeah. I'll start with my personal experience this time. As I was moving through my own addiction and recovery process, nature was a healing space. You know, there wasn't, and still to this day, often isn't a space that is as healing as just disappearing into the woods, right? I'm up here in, in Minnesota, so the boundary waters aren't far away. We're, we got boreal forests, we got waters all around. And so oftentimes I would just escape into nature, right? And that was really the beginning of recognizing its healing capacities. I've since done a lot of, you know, research and studying on the actual science behind those healing capacities, which, you know, we could save that for another conversation, but there is real data there, which I think is validating um, and particularly something of importance to share when people might, you know, think of escaping into nature as, you know, for lack of a better term, a little woo woo. Right. But let me ask you, let me just stop you real quick. Uh, yeah. Ian. So when you escape into nature and you're feeling these effects right away, what are some of the things that you're that you're feeling? Like what what is what was it when you go out into nature and you started realizing, whoa, there's some real healing power here? What were those feelings? And exactly in nature, what what exactly were you doing? Mm -hmm. In terms of what I was doing, I would just say I was existing. Right, you might you would say just that. sit there. You would sit there in stillness, or would you be walking around? Yeah, I mean, often I would walk somewhere until I found somewhere to sit in stillness. And how long would you sit for? Oh, hours, days, you know, days. Depends, depends on if I was intentionally going out there, right? I mean, if I'm taking a trip to the Boundary Waters, for sure, I'll be up there for days. Um, and you would just sit there in, in, in quiet. Yep. 
Absolutely. And how long? I mean, what what are some of the? Does it become euphoric? What is it exactly? Yeah, I mean, every time is a little bit different. Um, I wouldn't necessarily use the term euphoria. I think I would use the word distillation. Right. So I don't know if others can relate to this, but in my day to day life, right, there's there's to do's. You you need to executive function in order to get through life. You got to make decisions, et cetera, et cetera. We all know that life, right? The daily grind, some people call it. And that stuff piles up. And for me at that time in life, and, and still at some sometimes now in life, it piles up so much that it's it's hard to find that inner uh quietude. And so for me, when I'm out in nature, you know it's not necessarily that I'm walking away from anything. I think you could use that term of expression. I would feel like it's more walking towards something, right? I'm walking toward myself and I'm walking toward that inner uh, sanctity. And then, you know, the term distillation, it's, it's kind of like a distillery, all that day-to-day stuff kind of floats away and you recognize it has its place in life, but it's not the only part, right? And I think that it's ultimately just a regaining of awareness. It's a it's a reset of perspective. And those two things, I think, are really what bring me to the physiological changes, right, that I would experience. So you'd be out there for days at a time. And... What would be the change in perspective? You you leave the woods, you leave the forest, you go back to regular everyday life. What's what's different in the way that you're looking at the world at that point? There's an equilibrium, and there's a uh, acknowledgement of the tendency to make mountains out of molehills, right? the recognition that we're we're getting all torn up about something that, you know, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, we might not even remember. And if we do remember it, it's not nearly as important as we think it is in this moment. And so that really is a, you know, it's an awareness. It's in a state of, it's a state of being, right? It's a recognition. It's a, it's a healthy detachment a healthy distance between us and the daily to-dos of life. Mm. That's such a good point. The things that we're always stressing out about, it's in the moment, it feels so big. And then three days go by and you forgot what you stressed out about three days ago. It doesn't take very long, unless it's a catastrophic event. It usually doesn't take very long to forget what you were busy dwelling on a couple days prior. The beauty of that, is that it's true on both sides of the continuum, right? I mean, the the striving for always being in a state of happiness or joy or ecstasy, right? I mean, you can use the same thought exercise. Think of something from a month ago, a year ago, 10 years ago that you were just over the moon about, something that made your life ecstatic in that moment, have you been able to sustain that joy or that ecstasy every moment ever since? Of course not. We probably haven't, right? And so it works both ways. And I think that healthy distancing or detachment 
it's a good way to stay, you know, I, I shy away from in the moment or in the present because those things have so many different interpretations and meanings these days, but it's a, it's a way to stay within ourselves. Are you concerned about the future of humanity overall? Are you, are you concerned that this whole thing could become, we could be all wiped away at some point? Depends on which part of me you're asking and how healthy, healthily distanced I am in the moment. Um, you know, in this lifetime, in this next century, yes, 100%. In the next century. I think that we're going to see massive changes. You know, do I think that the human species is going to be gone in the next century? No. Uh, the way that I think about it, you know, at context of scale, uh, from a from a timeline perspective, the way most of us perceive time, you and I, people listening to this, the next generation that's listening to this, we are alive in a few decades and a century where our species gets to decide whether we're going to survive or not. Never before in the history of this planet has a species taken their own existence into their own hands. So short answer, yeah, that's what gets me out of bed every day. That's what gets me to do this work. That's what gets me to write the book, uh, work with organizations, et cetera. If I How really do you see it out, going down? What, 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 dig into that, please. You, you, you said that our future is in our hands. We get to decide. Why do you feel so strongly about that? What are we doing? What are we able to do or not or refrain from doing that has having that such direct impact on the future of humanity? I'll circle back to the question you asked me earlier about nature, right? A lot of the book is about existing within the bounds of natural law, right? And if you think about, uh, particularly here in the West, right? Because let's just first acknowledge there are indigenous community, communities across the globe that have and continue to live within the bounds of natural law, right? And there's real wisdom there. But if we if we talk about Western paradigms, capitalism and consumerism, effectively what we've done is we've created an infinite growth paradigm, right? More, 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 more. Yet we exist on a planet that has finite resources, in the way that we choose to define resources. So those two things are mutually exclusive. They're fundamentally incompatible. So, you know, to the question of, uh, to, to, your, to your question, what are we doing or what do we need to refrain from? You know, it doesn't take um, a ridiculously high IQ to take, to look at, infinite growth, infinite scalability, infinite consumption, and recognize that ultimately it won't be sustained. Now, it does take a high EQ, emotional intelligence, to look at that truth and then really have it change the way that you see, perceive, believe, act, move through the world. But to circle back to your original question, you know, in the next decade, in the next hundred years, in my lifetime, am I concerned about it? hundred percent. Because I think that there's, because there's this awareness of this pivotal moment that we have in human species. But if we take a step back, right? This planet has gone through five mass extinctions already. So 
every different iteration, life has become more intelligent, more sentient, more capable. So is it really a horrible thing, right? Whether it happens or not, from that perspective, am I concerned? No. So what do you suggest that a society does? You mentioned Western society. You mentioned capitalism. You mentioned abundance. In your opinion, then, what does a society have to do to ensure sustainability? This is really the fundamental ethos of the book. I think that there's a single and simple answer. We as individuals need to do our own internal work. When we as individuals do that work of self-actualization, right? Self-cultivation, spiritual maturation, whatever you call it, self-improvement, self-development, I don't really care. When we as individuals do that work, we become more effective agents of change. We will have more people more capable of making a positive impact. Now we could shift the conversation into what are the collective strategies we need to do, right? In order to save our species from the sixth mass extinction and many others, um, many other species. But I think that's a different conversation. I think that there's a, you know, they're interconnected, but there's a fine line between them. And in order to do that work collectively, we need to be able to do this work individually. What work though, Ian? You said we have to be able to self-actualize, look internally, be better people. But what, what what does that lead to in terms of sustaining humanity? Recognizing that, recognizing the aspects of our own lives that are not sustainable. And I use that term loosely, right? Sustainable in the sense of what are the things that are contributing or not contributing to our health and well-being? All the way to the other side of the continuum, which is recognizing the things that we're doing or not doing that are contributing to the health and well-being of the planet. Right? Same for society. So for those of us that are in the global north, you know, recognizing the amount of our consumption is wildly outpacing the rate at which the earth can renew herself. Okay, so, so for your in your in this example, you're saying in just a very simplistic terminology, consume less. Yeah, in this simplistic example. But then, you know, to your question of why, right? What do we need to be doing? It's not just about consuming less. That's the what. We could talk about the how, but what what's the why behind it? It's recognizing we don't need to consume as much as we are in order to feel fulfilled, right? And to go back to that comment, uh, the commentary about consumerism, you know, and whether we can sustain that joy, right? We know through science there's neurochemistry that reinforces consumption, right? We get that high when we purchase the new thing. But that becomes a rat race of trying to reproduce that neurological response, neurochemical response. And so, you know, if we can circle back to 
what do I get from being out in nature for extended periods of time? It's allowing literal brain chemistry, you know, physiology to settle. And so do we need to consume less for those of the, those of us in the global North for sure. You know, uh, let's talk about society. Do more of us need to recognize that we play a role in uh, justice and equanimity, equality? Absolutely. Everybody plays a role. And it's not to say, I think the point, Nate, that I'm really trying to make, it's moving beyond this kind of dualistic paradigm, right? Be more sustainable, consume less. Be a better person, uh, treat others better. It's it's not about uh, that paradigm, black and white, all or nothing. Ultimately, we need to outgrow it. We need to recognize that it's something that is in and of itself a limitation, right? To bring the conversation all the way back full circle to where we started, potential. So long as we continue to choose to live in those parallel worlds, right? Black, white, yin and yang, hot, cold, good, bad. We're choosing to define the world with limitations. And if we choose to do that, then we are choosing our own limitations. And so I'm not necessarily suggesting that we need to wipe away all of those things and that we're gonna be able to sing Kumbaya around the fire all together, right? Hands clasped with one another. But in order to move towards that end of the continuum, we all need to do our own individual work. We need to come to terms with ourselves and recognize that we have more to offer and we have more to give. And that in order to self-actualize to that extent, we need to really face the aspects of ourselves that are not allowing us to do that or not allowing us to do it consistently or to the fullest expression um, and the extent possible. What's the purpose of life? For me, I would say it's being of service. Of service to who? Not just who, also what, right? Not just being in service to other people or beings, being in service to this nature of existence, right? Being in service to you know, I would I would use the term um, natural law divine will, right? By being in service to ourselves and one another, it's a great start. Being in service to the collective, the planet, it's a great start. Um, being in service to the divine, I think is really the ultimate expression of existence, the ultimate purpose of life. And even for those people out there, right? I have friends who are self-proclaimed self atheists. 
you know, my, we've all heard people say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. You don't have to believe in any of this. That's, you know, I don't think anyone, well, I'm certainly not asking anyone to believe in any of this. Rather recognizing that if the fullest expression of your life is, has no definition of God or a higher purpose, higher power, that that's 100% okay as well, right? And allowing others to choose um, to choose that is the same thing I would ask for myself. So being of service, that's my personal definition, right? I mean, and I think that that often takes, takes us beyond a conversation around, you know, being happy. Some interesting studies out there right now that are coming out focused on um, societies that focus on happiness are actually less happy because they spend more time focused on the times that they're not happy. That so I think, sense. again, you know, it's an interesting paradigm, right? And I think part of the beauty of doing that self-actualization is that we get to discover and or design what's meaningful to us. You know, we get to de design, discover what is our own purpose as individuals. And so long as that doesn't hurt other beings or the planet, I think it's a wide open playing field. What's the one thing that keeps you most up at night? You seem to be very in tune. You seem to have a... a a view of society and the world, a way of, of bettering our planet, bettering humanity. What causes you the most angst when you go to bed? Besides how many copies of your book you're going to sell. <laughs> That's the last thing that keeps me up at night. Um, I would say the thing that keeps me up at night is how our species is going to evolve and develop over the course of the next 100 years, particularly over the next 10 to 20 years. Um, the science around climate change is probably where it starts for me, but it's not where it ends to me. And you know, the thing, the existential crisis that keeps me up is whether we're going to be able to create a future where we're leaving this world and our society in the hands of our children and children's children in a way that's a bit better off than the way that you and I inherited it, right? I mean, you and I are in a generation where we inherited it from um, the boomers, as they say, right? And there's no blame to be placed. That's not what I'm doing. But it's the the choices that the generation before us made directly impact the world that you and I are now living in. And the world that you and I are living in, the choices that we make in the next 10, 20, 30 years will directly impact the world that the next generation inherits and lives in. 
Soil and Spirit, we've mentioned the book several times. We will link it in the show notes. Talk to us just overall, generally speaking. What is the book? What's the book's overall message? And who's the uh, audience that should be consuming this? Yeah. Soil and Spirit, subtitle is Seeds of Purpose, Nature's Insight, and the Deep Work of Transformational Change. Central ethos is really what we've been talking about today, right? How that personal cultivation, self-actualization, is what's going to lead to cultural transformation. Um, the book is written for people in transition, change makers, people who are wanting something a little bit more out of life, wanting to be more of service, wanting to make the world a better place. But it's not didactic. It's not dogmatic. Um, it is simply a commentary on the relationship between what's happening in our internal landscape and what's happening in the social landscape, the external landscape, and the spiritual landscape. And so if there's any prescription in the book, it's not a 10 steps to a new you prescription. It's simply a let's roll up our sleeves and dig our hands in the dirt. Let's recognize that there is a foundational um, substrate to spirituality, however we choose to define spirituality as individuals in a collective. And that in order to live this life to the fullest expression and the fullest extent, we got to go inward. Beautiful. Soil and Spirit, guys, check it out in the show notes if you want to learn more about Ian and his book. Uh, we've linked it here in the notes. Listen, uh, Ian Williams, thank you very much. And continued success and blessings to you. I really appreciate the conversation. Same to you, Nate. Have a have a blessed day and hope our paths cross again soon.